This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the International Women's Day discussion on Different Day, Same Problem. My name is Mirla Delebegovic, and I am the Dean for Industrial Engagement and Research and Knowledge Transfer at the University of Aberdeen. As part of the International Women's Day and British Science Week programme of events, this panel discussion with successful women researchers and a leading public health experts will discuss the challenges they face in their everyday lives and their extraordinary careers. But before we start, just a little bit of background about the International Women's Day itself. International Women's Day has been celebrated across the world since the early 1900s. Originally, the aim was to provide a forum for women to campaign for gender equality and women's rights. Over time, it has evolved and now on the 8th of March every year, thousands of events are held throughout the world to recognise the progress that has been made to inspire women and to celebrate their achievements. The theme for this year is hashtag choose to challenge. This is quite an appropriate one this year, especially in the light of all the things that have happened since March 2020. A challenged world is an alert world. Individually, we are all responsible for our own thoughts and our own actions all day and every day. We can all choose to challenge and call out gender bias and inequality. We can all choose to seek out and celebrate women's achievements. And collectively, we can all help create an inclusive world. From challenge comes change. So let's all choose to challenge. Now, let me introduce you to our panel of four outstanding and inspirational women. Professor Leslie Anderson, Ms. Gillian Evans, Dr. Catherine Martin and Dr. Sumia Palil. Maybe we can go in this order and you can just tell us a bit about yourselves and what you do in your everyday job. Thank you. Hello and welcome. I'm Professor Leslie Anderson. I am co-director of the Aberdeen Centre for Health Data Science at the University of Aberdeen and a professor of health data science. Most of my research involves cancer, uh, looking for um, improved diagnostics, but also to improve patient outcomes and reduce the risk of people developing cancer. I work with researchers around the globe, um, including the US and Australia, but also in many low and middle income countries in Africa and across Asia. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone for attending today, and I'm looking forward to participating in the panel discussion. Thank you. Hi everybody, um, I'm Gillian Evans and I'm from NHS Grampian and it's a real pleasure and privilege to be here today. Uh, I um, started a very long career in healthcare management um, in England a long time ago, too long ago to, to even remember in fact, uh, but uh, it's been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful career. I wouldn't swap my job for anything. Um, and my job at the moment is very much around health intelligence. It has been for over 20 years now. So, uh, Leslie, your work in, uh, in data science uh, and our work in the health intelligence team in NHS Grampian does so much with the University of Aberdeen uh, and health data. And we're so happy about that collaboration, which has strengthened so much, particularly in the last year. So that's a, it's a real positive. Um, 
Uh, like, like Leslie, I've done work in other countries, uh, in the UK, but also uh, abroad too, in Nigeria and India. And it's been a real pleasure to uh, be part of other health systems uh, and the different way in which they function um, and the outcomes which they all seek to attain, which are, are very similar, of course, to ours. Um, another, another point to mention is my work in the voluntary sector, uh, where I uh, work with a um, with a uh, with SHMU, for those of you who are local to Aberdeen, uh, it's it's all about uh, helping people build confidence, their skills, young people and old people. Um, it's about employability and recognition of people who have had a difficult start in life, and it's all about digital media. So that's that's a great thing for me. Um, but my last thing is just to mention the work that I've done in the past year um, throughout the pandemic, which of course has been very health intelligence related, but it's also been very communication oriented, and I've spent quite a bit of time communicating um, about the situation and the pandemic, both in the local situation and across Scotland. And it's been a pleasure and a privilege to do that. So I hope I can contribute something today um, and uh, over to the next person. Thank you. So I, I think that's myself. Um, I have to say that I'm quite honoured to, um, to be here today. And so thank you very much for having me. Um, my name is um, Catherine Martin. I'm a lecturer of epidemiology within the um, Institute of Applied Health Sciences at the University of Aberdeen. Um, and I lead a program of research that's focused on physical activity, um, particularly among older adults, those individuals with arthritis and musculoskeletal conditions and chronic pain. Um, and one other area that I'm um, particularly passionate about is um, patients' lived experience of their chronic condition, of their pain. Um, and I work closely with patients and members of the public to involve them in research, um, from idea generation, grant submission, to carrying out actual research activities and trying to um, bring the, the findings back to um, the, the individuals who've taken part in the research to understand and make sense of that data, and then work with them to, to share the results more broadly, rather than only just in um, you know, uh, publications and, and journals, but to actually do wider public engagement events about that research. And so you can tell from my accent, um, I'm not native to Aberdeen. I was born just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And um, I will, <clears throat> pardon me, just say that um, I have really enjoyed working at the University of Aberdeen. Um, I continue to collaborate with individuals back in the United States um, and further afield in other, other countries, much like my colleagues. Um, and um, I would say that um, I've gotten where I am today in large part due to support from teachers and mentors who really encouraged um, preparation and perseverance as keys to success. So I think today's conversation will be really exciting because many of those individuals were, were women, um, really, really wonderful women. Thank you. Okay, uh, so my name is Omia Khalil uh, and I am so honored and delighted to be here today uh, as part of the panel member. Um, so I am the head of Scottish Biologics Facility which is a drug discovery center, uh, part of the University of Aberdeen. Uh, in the Scottish Biologics, we develop recombinant antibodies uh, and develop them into novel diagnostics and therapeutics. Uh, in my role in the facility uh, is mainly to manage these projects and also engage with uh, collaborators and uh, potential customers, uh, develop new projects, apply for grant funding, and also something which is which I'm very passionate about uh, is training the next generation of antibody engineers and technologists. So some of the projects that I lead uh, in the facility include uh, antibody-based diagnostics and new treatments for Alzheimer's disease. We are also looking at novel therapeutic uh, options for bacterial and fungal infections. 
And this is mainly to tackle antimicrobial resistance. As part of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were also involved in making diagnostic antibodies uh, and develop test kits uh, for uh, COVID uh, detection. Um, and it's not just in drug discovery that we use these antibodies. Uh, we make antibody-based uh, tests for um, tackling environmental issues, such as making uh, test kits for detecting biotoxins in, in um, water samples in tropical and subtropical countries, and also uh, you know, farmed products such as uh, shellfish meat um, in uh, UK farms. Also, some, uh, another project which is very close to my heart is to use these antibodies to, uh, to kind of reduce fatalities associated with snake, uh, snake bite envenoming in countries like uh, India and Africa. Um, and I'm very proud to say that in the Scottish Biologics Facility, which is a team of 11 uh, scientists, including PGR students and postdocs, we represent uh, seven different uh, countries other than uh, uh, the UK. And we bring in our own life experiences, our own uh, problem solving skills onto the table. And uh, you know, that's, that's such something that I'm, I'm very proud of and passionate about. Uh, and as you can uh, you know, understand from my accent, uh, I'm not uh, uh, from the UK. Uh, I spent my childhood and early years of higher education in India. I came to Aberdeen to do my master's and uh, I love it here. Never left Aberdeen since then. <laughs> Um, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, these are really four different inspirational stories. So um, as I say, please post any questions you have for the panelists. But I thought I would start off kind of just asking a very general question on how you got to where you are today. How did you become the leader in your field? And I was just wondering whether you can tell us a little bit about the barriers you may have encountered and how you overcame these. So uh, maybe if we can actually start with Samia, if you don't mind, um, your experiences. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, I mean, a uh, great question. And uh, I, you know, for barriers, some of the barriers that I faced was the ones that I created uh, myself. Um, you know, after my PhD, I got this fantastic opportunity to, to be part of the team to set up the Scottish Biologics Facility and, um, you know, work on antibody projects. Um, however, I, after having my first child, like most um, women, I also went into this stagnant phase in my career, uh, mainly because of the fact that I was so convinced that this little person came into my life completely dependent on me. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, as a mother, I should be tending to her each and every uh, need. I wouldn't uh, trust my husband to look after even for a, an evening. So that means I would just, you know, like come into the lab, do my work, come home, no additional, um, you know, kind of training, no conferences, no networking. Um, that was uh, how I was. But things changed when we had our second born, which is actually a set of twins. And at this stage, I had to let my husband get involved. And actually, he was quite good at it, much better than how I thought. Um, and I was also getting a bit dissatisfied by my, you know, that kind of lack of progress in my career. And with this uh, kind of newfound trust in my husband, if I can say that, I thought, okay, I have to venture out now, get out there, you know, go for conferences, network, uh, speak to collaborators, develop new projects and build a team. So that was fantastic for me. And then uh, that, that's how the, the career, you know, kind of really progressed. Another one I uh, really wanted to add quickly was another barrier I found was the lack of, um, role models, um, you know, who are more appropriate for somebody like me who came into the country and then wanted to kind of establish a, a, a career in biotech. I mean, 
I was surrounded by talented, ambitious women during my PhD, my early postdoc, you know, don't get me wrong. It's just that I couldn't relate to uh, most of them because their career, their, the journey that they took is different from what I had to take. So I found that quite you know, difficult to relate to uh, those kind of stories and role models to look upon. Um, whereas now, I've, you know, with um, kind of training opportunities like Aurora, I am, you know, I am in touch with a lot of wonderful women coming from diverse backgrounds. And, you know, we are now able to kind of, you know, like share our experiences, the challenges that we faced, and we're all, you know, learning from each other's success. So, yeah, so that, that's, uh, yes, a couple of barriers that I thought that I faced and overcame them. And just kind of wondering, so this is a um, slightly different perspective, maybe from from Gillian as a public health um, expert, what kind of barriers you will have encountered in your journey? Do you know, um, I mean, the NHS is the most amazing place to work and I've worked in it a long time and and I've been afforded all sorts of freedoms and latitude to be able to uh, bring things to the fore that I, I feel strongly about. So, of course, my, my job is around data and around intelligence, and um, I get passionate, like like all of us, in trying to communicate that. And I think um, I think the main thing that I've been able to do is to bring um, to bring a style of communication which seems to work. Maybe it simplifies things for people. I don't know, but um, I, th I think that's why I've got here today and especially over the last year, where I may have uh, not been so prominent as I have been. So I, I think communications really helped. Um, barriers, I, I tell you, the biggest barrier I face, and I think, I think is an opportunity for coming out of this pandemic, has been where we live and our ability to influence things at a Scottish national level and at an English national level, um, let alone on a global level, but certainly in our country where a lot of the NHS influence seems to occur in a central belt. And because of the way that we, uh, where we live, we're remote, uh, because there hasn't been a lot, a lot of opportunity for remote working until the last year, it's been really difficult to uh, raise raise the the profile and the importance of the northeast of Scotland. So um, I, I'm optimistic that as we emerge from this, uh, that we will have found a new way of working that allows us to engage no matter where we are. And when we start to think about employment opportunities and bringing in fresh blood to the northeast of Scotland, imagine us in the NHS employing someone in Australia or India and not having to live in our country necessarily to do that. I think it affords us so many great opportunities. So so I think the barrier that was there in terms of influence um, is, is gradually changing and I really welcome that. That's wonderful. Thank you. And Leslie, do you have um, more to add to this? I'm sure you have plenty. Yes, absolutely. And I, what Gillian and Samir both highlighted really resonates with me as well. Um, I did my initial career in Queen's University, Belfast from Northern Ireland. So again, I'm not Scottish, um, I'm Northern Irish. Um, and I moved to the US for two years um, to do a postdoctoral fellowship after I finished my PhD. And I really think that that was the trajectory start of my career. So working with international renowned researchers at the National Cancer Institute in the US really facilitated my networking, getting to know people, and then coming back to Northern Ireland, um, it, 
left those existing relationships that Catherine has already highlighted, where you can continue to work on an international scale and in an international capacity. And that was one of the, the real highlights of my career, I think, that, that really moved things forward. And the other aspect was, so I have three children. I have a six, a nine and a 12 year old. Um, and that has been a real challenge. Um, a challenge to the career because it was, you were starting off, you were stopping as you were pregnant, you were trying to get back on that trajectory and then I was finding out I was pregnant again. So I think that that was, that was a real challenge and I think it definitely did delay the steps forward in the career. But as Samia said, once, once the children were born and things um, opened up and I felt I was able to travel again, the career has really sped up again. Um, over the last year with COVID has been a real challenge, particularly with homeschooling. And I'm sure many of the women and men who are on the call today and, and, and everyone has had impacts either with caring responsibilities or, or with home education. So my son has had no home education today. My husband has been working. I have been working all day. And so he'll be doing his homeschooling at the weekend. Um, and we've had to try and find ways around that. Um, and thankfully, the schools have been incredibly supportive. But it's definitely been a real challenge continuing to work full time with those responsibilities as well. And I'm sure many of the audience will be able to relate to that. Absolutely. Um, um, how about you, Catherine? Um, I guess you will have also, as you say, come from, from the United States, you will have uh, faced a lot of different barriers as well. So, so for me, I would say um, that what really has enhanced and, and been supportive has been um, those strong role models, the mentors, um, and, and folks that um, uh, have been in my life that actually have provided opportunities or sort of pointed me in directions. But much like um, Samia, I, I also feel like sometimes I've been my own barrier. Um, and, and yes, moving internationally, I, I made two international moves. Uh, well, one from Bethesda, Maryland to, to London and then back to Maryland. And then that, so it was actually maybe three international moves, if you will, in the space of about three years, um, back and forth, back and forth. And so it's starting over and finding those new networks and the people that are, you know, supportive and, and just who to go to, who to ask um, for help. And so I was uh, saying that uh, getting in your own way sometimes, I think, can be an issue. Um, finding that uh, you can ask people for help, um, being able to delegate, um, you know, and, and finding that trust and being able to um, have those good working relationships um, sometimes I think is um, of utmost importance. So for, for me, um, I would also say, and this may be some other people's experience that are listening, um, but imposter syndrome is something that women struggle with. And that is something that I have actually had to really think about, work on, um, and again, you know, really be supported by wonderful other women. And, and I think that's something that's quite um, uh, important for us to be remembering when we're not together, that's a huge barrier as well. I think we're getting some questions coming in on the chats, by the way. Thank you. So actually, I will go to Jenny Fernandez's question, if that's okay. 
Um, and the question is, how do we encourage uh, females to stay in academia when so many feel that the, they hit the wall of caring responsibilities and the juggling just becomes too much? Um, maybe, maybe Somia, would you like to start with that one? Sure. So I think um, in it's it is uh, difficult, isn't it? So when you are uh, when you realize, yeah, caring, uh, it no matter whether it's for children or for elderly, you know, uh, parents. It's just the way uh, we are wired. Um, and I don't mean to say it in a you know like anatomically, but it is like how we were brought up. Uh, you know, the roles that we were expected to do. Uh, you know, so it all means means that we uh, we always take the the kind of uh, the brunt or um, most of the, the domestic chores or you know, childcare responsibilities and all that. So I think it's all uh, it's all how you how you get through this. You know, as an individual, how you can uh, uh, you know kind of find your own uh, you know path to take your uh, career forward. So in my case, it's, you know, like I kind of um, got to a stage. Yes, you know, what can I do? So I've kind of you know like brought in my partner into the caring responsibility. So in you know, between us, we we share that. And also, you know, like start thinking about um, what is the, the next stage that you need to, you know, what is the next step that you need to take in your career? Uh, so for me, uh, personally, this uh, pandemic uh, has been quite you know, productive in a way that you know, I, I got that a space to reflect upon, uh, to think about, you know, what, what is the next step that I need to take for that uh, career move? And um, be it uh, training, uh, getting enrolled in uh, trainings, or you know, like setting up uh, that collab, you know, that network of collaborators. So uh, you know, th those things you, you start uh, kind of you know, draw a map of what you need to do, uh, and then uh, you know, take that step one by one, and uh, yeah, make your own path. Is what um, I I have to I have to say, and, and from my experience. I mean, it's an interesting question that Jenny um, brings up because um, just thinking about uh, people in academia affects us. But yesterday I saw a report that the same issue faces women in law, and another report this morning the same issue faces women in business. Um, do you think this pandemic has kind of uncovered, you know, deeper inequalities? And this is the subject of today's uh, discussion: is inequalities and that women are a lot more affected by the current pandemic and kind of the nature of our jobs and nature of our contracts. What do you think, Gillian? I mean, very much so. It's, 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 well, it's well discussed now, isn't it? You know, the, the issue of work-life balance, um, the homeschooling, the childcare, the caring responsibilities, the domestic chores that Samaya was talking about. It, it does it, a lot of it feels as if it falls to us. You know, if I'm honest, um, sometimes I quite like the mix. <laughs> I, and isn't it interesting? I noticed that, that Louise in the chat has said something, maybe, maybe the system needs to change rather than we need to change, but it's a bit of both, isn't it? Um, I, I mean, the inequalities are deep-seated. We know that they're there. We know that they're, um, the, the different positions that, that women have in, in society and their careers. Uh, not just in STEM, but in, in all walks of life, mean that there, there are deep-rooted inequalities there. Um, but I, I just wonder if there's something changing in society about, um, it's the 24-7 culture, isn't it? You know. So, um, Leslie, you mentioned you, you, your son is going to be homeschooled at the weekend, so the weekend is a school day. So my work is often very late at night or very early in the morning, but typically not a nine to five. So I think I think the, uh, the you know the traditional structures that we've had in place are definitely changing. They were going that way anyway, 
Um, but, but yes, to get back to your inequality question, I, I completely agree with it. And if anything, what the pandemic has done is to shine a light, really, to expose um, the inequalities that are there in our lives. And I feel so incredibly passionate about them, um, you know, particularly when I think of my own kids, actually, who are older, um, but still going through the education system. Um, I worry about their inequality, what's happening to them, and they're in a good place. You know, they've they've got a, a good home a home set up that should make them thrive, but the system isn't letting them do that. So there's an inequality of students coming through, isn't there, who have who have been disadvantaged through the situation. So I'm not giving any um, advice. Just I'm I'm really just sympathising with it and acknowledging it. No, thank you. So. Catherine, what do you think of going back to Jenny's question is how to encourage females to, to stick with it and stay in academia? Well, I think that we have been seeing more recently, particularly uh, for women, that they are in positions um, that are maybe not full time. Um, that sometimes, you know, being um, at a lower percentage, not full time, brings with it a little bit more of a precarious nature. Um, and actually, um, if they are in that child care, caregiving roles, um, that they may be unable to actually do some of the extra work um, or, or just even do their work during work hours. Um, we've seen reports of unequal submission of manuscripts um, for review at scientific journals during um, the, the pandemic. That was something that was flagged really earlier. So more men were being noted that they were lead or senior author on some of these um, uh, uh, papers, so maybe suggesting that men were finding time to get these papers, you know, their unfinished projects done. Um, and I think that um, women in academia are facing a lot more of these um, higher demands in an area where it's really an insecure future. There's um, fewer core funded positions. Um, things are, if they are made available, um, they, especially for early career researchers, um, they're either part-time or short-term contracts. Um, and I think that um, there's even fewer of these positions and more applicants. And so people have to start to really, um, you know, distinguish themselves on their CVs. Um, so things like any sort of prizes and scholarships and internships, uh, early publications, um, I mean, sort of any sort of employment history, all of that feeds into this. And inequalities start from childhood. So if you are not able to access those um, uh, opportunities, then you may miss out. So we talk about that leaky pipeline, I think, um, and, and, and where people start to drop out and, and the numbers. Um, and I think that that's something that's really been highlighted. Um, I have a colleague who gave me some numbers, um, if you don't mind me just giving some stats. There's approximately 21,000 professors in the UK um, and only 140 um, of these at a professorial level identified as black. So that's 0.7% of, of those totals, 21%. So there's this leaky pipeline, especially for um, you know, people of, of uh, BME and also for, for women, um, because male professors continue to outnumber females by about three to one. So um, thank you, Dr. Aravinda Grutapalli. Um, very much appreciated for those statistics. I think that's absolutely great that you've actually touched upon that. I, and I, if Leslie doesn't mind, I want to kind of take this forward to her. So obviously, Leslie, you have made it to this beautiful professorial position, you know. But 
do you think that really the hardest part is for people at early stages in their careers? And kind of, I wanted to build on, on what Catherine had just brought up. Um, we will have all seen the Australian government's report about the specific issues that affect people from diverse backgrounds, that there are barriers to entry and barriers to retention, as well as progression, especially in the STEM workforce. What's your thinking about how this could be improved or what we can do to help it? So absolutely, um, Catherine, I think it, it is very challenging um, for, for women to get professorial positions. Um, and I certainly face challenges with that, having applied locally um, for promotions. And every time I applied, they said, well, you're doing great, but you just need to try a bit harder and you just need to bring in some more money and you just need to get some more publications and you just need to work with people on an international basis more and you need to do this and this and this. And many of the things that I was being asked to do were prohibited or prohibitive for me because of the fact that I had a young family, for example. I didn't want to be working or traveling on an international scale at that time. So I do understand and relate to the fact that many women, once they start having families and they have children, it becomes incredibly difficult. And I remember whenever I went back to the US and I met with a colleague and she said, when should I start having my family? And I said, well, let's put it this way. I never feel as if I'm being as good a mum as I should be because I'm working. And I never feel as if I'm doing as good a work as I'm doing because I'm a mother and I have to make those changes and those, those adaptations. But that's exactly what you have to do. I think if you're wanting to continue within any career, and be a parent, you need to make those changes and those modifications and realize we're never 100% of what we wish that we could be, even if we don't have children. So I think that everybody just has to take that acceptance that you try and you work your best, but you don't, um, you don't ever reach those goals of what you're, what you're expecting that you should be at. Um, I think the real challenge that we see is that many of the inequalities that do occur um, often occur as as a um, within the sectors, and as as um, Catherine was saying, that many people um, with different racial um, perspective, you know, different of different races, or who maybe have a different perspective from a religious perspective, um, and that was certainly something in Northern Ireland that we that we faced. Um, can have challenges. And what I would also like to reiterate is that the, the challenges that I faced, I think were really, um, I was given a lot of support by female role models, um, as, as has been highlighted by some of the other panel members. And if you haven't had a female mentor, it's certainly something that I think women should look for and should ask. I'm more than happy to mentor any female or to have a chat with any female who feels that they would like or would value or would um, have a benefit from that support. Um, and I think that it's also taking an understanding that you might 
slow your career down during those early years of whenever your children are young, you never get those years back again. Um, and I'm having children crying now outside the room um, just to show that this is real life. Um, so, you know, it is it is completely normal and it is possible to come back um, and, and to re um, move your career on after taking that time. Um, out of the career. So I think it is really important. We do not want to lose female females in, in academia and certainly in science and um, as we move forward. And so it's also really, and I've seen a huge um, benefit having moved to the University of Aberdeen with regards to the support network that is available and that I have been benefited um, from over the last year. And, and, you know, even just giving three extra days, rest days um, over Easter, getting the additional rest days over Christmas, those types of things that the organisations are taking on board and providing have been incredibly supportive and helpful, not just for females, but for the entire workforce. And I think it's just really important to commend researchers over the last year. Despite all of the challenges that we've faced, we have been able to continue research, we've been able to continue to produce publications, we've been able to do all of those things. But as Catherine was saying, you know, I haven't got to any of my publications. I'm homeschooling whenever I'm outside of my meetings and outside of the other responsibilities. So I think, you know, from my perspective, it's just being realistic um, as to what you can achieve and you can do and to have a balance between work and your home life, which is crucially important. That's wonderful. Thank you, Leslie. Um, and just going through um, audience questions, it's a really good one from Liz Ratri, and you've just touched upon that, Leslie. So I was just wondering if I could ask Samia about this. Would you encourage identifying a mentor and how has this helped in your career development? Absolutely. You, you know, so the, I think it was that uh, men, uh, mentorship. So, it, I mean, I'll, I'll just maybe, you know, like briefly touch upon this from a personal, uh, from a personal experience. So this is when, you know, so my case, so I kind of realized, you know, that, that there's more need to be done in my career when I had a, a female, it's not mentor, but this, at that, uh, this, that time in the university or in our school, we had, um, you know, like, uh, it's not your, um, immediate PI, you are line manager, you know, you'll be allocated with a different line manager. So I had a, a, a female line manager, more like a mentor to me. And it's just, you know, so that's when I, the, the meetings that I had with her, that kind of really, you know, like started this discussion conversation that, oh yeah, I need to be doing some uh, more um, in my career and then you look at opportunities, etc. So absolutely having a mentor and in my experience, having a female mentor will definitely help us uh, to kind of you know do the, uh, to have that pro, uh, ex, uh, progress in career, it's mainly because you know this is somebody whom you can look upon, you can you know as a role model, but also sometimes you know just that that pat on your back saying that you're doing wonderful, you know. So that's just there are certain uh, lots of times where I doubt myself. I'd be thinking, I'd be questioning my abilities. You know, am I doing the right thing? Is this you know do? I, but to have somebody uh, like a mentor telling you that no, this is what you're doing. You're doing a wonderful job. That is, you know, so oh, we all need that, you know, that imposter syndrome of, you know, thinking, oh, you know, like, uh, uh, am I eligible to be uh, doing something like this? To have a mentor is really important. Also, I would uh, add to that, you know, having some sort of like an advocate or a sponsor for you, because it's so 
for people to kind of you know move up in your career for more women to take up uh, you know leadership roles senior roles so we need to have you know people around uh, us who can kind of you know advocate for us who can trust in us and then give us these kind of you know high responsibility jobs that will also uh, help uh, women uh, and then you know kind of that close that inequality in higher senior roles um, you know at, at the moment i think you know we're, we're still trying to close that gap so a mentor and a sponsor uh, is what i would say definitely i'm just wondering if either of you you know panel members if any of you have not had a mentor and got to where you are today or have you all had a mentor that's kind of helped you through the process? I can see a lot of nodding here. Maybe Catherine, do you want to tell us about this? Um, I've been extremely fortunate, I think, at all different parts of my educational process. I mean, even if you look back, you might have had a teacher in elementary school that um, was supportive or encouraging and pointed you in the direction of things that they thought would allow your talents to shine. Um, as an undergraduate, I was fortunate to be mentored by Professor Ed Thompson, and he encouraged me and sort of um, gave me, I think, uh, the sort of helped to spark my passion in research um, and said, yeah, come along on a summer project. You know, do, would you want to do some research? And being offered that opportunity and being trusted with that was really something special, especially as an undergraduate, to sort of foster that and to build those skills and resources. Again, that's where the opportunities come in and then things sort of continue and grow because you have it on your CV, you have that confidence and you have that mentor to go to um, for questions. And all throughout, I've had other wonderful female um, mentors. Um, and I would have to say that um, along the way, you, you might... Um, come across someone and you think they would be a really great mentor or a really nice fit. Um, but you also have to remember it's about relationships and that level of trust and, you know, a, a level of um, where values lie as well. So wanting to make sure, um, I suppose, that you see in that person the person you would like to become, um, because there's all sorts of types of, of researchers and, and people that are, are in, involved in, in the work that we do in academia. And so finding someone that you think, okay, they have a strong character, um, they have a good sense of, of justness and, and fairness, um, and, you know, I guess mentors that will help bring out the best in you in a very selfless way, I think is really an important um, uh, component, and I was fortunate, um, and still am, and I think sometimes you have mentors at different parts of your life, um, and you might still keep in contact with them, but they're not the right person for the situation you're in currently. And so you you find those people and you seek them out when you need them. And I think that's, again, about finding the trust, having the relationships and being able to put your hand up and say, look, I need a little bit of help here. What do you think is best for me? Or what would you have done in this situation? I think makes the world a difference. I think that's a great point to bring up, Catherine, that at different points in life, you require different type of mentorship and you kind of keep those previous mentors as your friends and, and your allies. I was wondering whether we can discuss one of the questions that Carl Leidecker has posted on this, uh, in the chat. What would make the biggest difference in responding to the gender inequalities caused by COVID? And um, Gillian is seeing me kind of looking at her. I was just wondering, Gillian, if you could give us your opinion on this one. I mean, some of, some of it is just about policies, whether they're set politically, nationally, or whether they're set by your own organisation. Um, so it's people with, uh, with women's perspectives on things that can really make a difference. And 
what we what we what we know is that a lot of the policies really have made it difficult for women to keep on working and juggle the responsibilities. But imagine uh, some of the policies uh, uh, around childcare and caring responsibilities had been quite different right at the start. I think that would have, I think policies would have made a huge difference. The, the other thing is how your organisation copes. And, uh, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're chatting around culture in our organisation all the way through here, aren't we? Um, and I think, uh, I, I, I do think it makes a difference who you're working for, um, and not just at the top of your organisation, but filtering all the way through. So um, how well, I mean, Samaya, you mentioned about line management. I think the importance of working with your boss and your immediate colleagues is really important. Um, so informal things can make a huge difference, can't they? They can, they can cut you the slack that you might need to be able to get things finished or coping strategies, support, confidence building, all of that kind of thing. So, um, so p policies um, and practices, I think, uh, are, are the things that we should focus on, and they're at every level and every walk in our life. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a really good answer. Um, I was wondering whether I can ask um, Leslie a slightly different question. It's it's a it's a one that we've touched upon previously with the imposter syndrome, and I see that Margaret Ross has also asked this one. So, the imposter syndrome and guilt feel like a huge part of being a working woman and a mother how much do we know about whether men feel the same way and what is it to be learned from male mentors just kind of going back to to talking about mentorship again absolutely and and i don't think that a mentor necessarily needs to be a woman um i have um came through my career with some fantastic line managers who have be nothing but supportive. I remember whenever I had my second child, I was breastfeeding and I wanted to come back to work, but he refused to take a bottle. So he would starve all day and just want to feed at nighttime. And my boss, I spoke to him and said, look, I really don't think I can come back in the capacity that I'm at. And he says, that's fine, just bring him with you. And I said, I can't bring my child into work with me. And he said, I have no problem with him sitting in your office if you're happy to bring him in. And so my son came in and he came in and he, he was he was a great baby and he was able to get hooked onto the desk in a little chair and I gave him things to play with. And he came to the lunch table and got hooked on at the lunch table. I think things have changed and from a, from an insurance perspective and et cetera, and ensuring that um, there, there's no harm um, that probably has changed from a from an organisational perspective, whether or not you can support that. Um, but those types of understanding um, from male um, line managers, male mentors, was really important for me at that stage of my career. Um, also, at the organisation that I was at previously, we had a formal mentorship um, uh, procedure. And that was really helpful because that enabled me to meet with females at a higher grade and a higher level within the university and also to then go to senior meetings, for example, um, and be a bit like a fly on the wall. And that really helped. And one of the other things that I think really helped, and I'm deviating from your question, but one of the other things that I really think helped with my career trajectory was the opportunity to be able to take 
a leadership training program that lasted over a nine month um, period. And following that then went into a leadership role as deputy director of the cancer registry in Northern Ireland, where I was overseeing and managing, you know, 25 individuals. And so those types of opportunities of courses and of development opportunities were really crucially important in my confidence, I think, and I can do this, um, as well as also giving me the opportunities to be able to understand how to manage um, other people. So those are, those are things that I think are important for organisations to be able to provide the opportunities for women and men um, to take advantage of training that will help them and support them in moving to the next career step. I think that's a really good answer. And actually, I remember when I first started at the University of Aberdeen, which was in 2007, um, I didn't have a nursery spot as yet. So I came to my first day at work with the buggy and a three month old baby as well. That was in the yes. zoology building. I'm not sure that they checked the insurance at the time. <laughs> and I should also mention that, uh, mention that the University of Aberdeen, for those who are uh, here from the university, does have a mentoring scheme, which works really well from my understanding. and parts of it as well but also for those who are not part of the University of Aberdeen today there are also a number of national and international mentoring schemes that you can take part in and, and I've taken part in those and they're absolutely fantastic but I think what you brought about the leadership and and you know the opportunities for leadership kind of training and opening up that door and leaving the door open is really important and, and kind of fits in with the with the question I was going to ask from um, Janine Chalmers and this is going to be to Samia. Um, so we are often told that women have less confidence than men and that they kind of hang back more and don't apply for promotion. Is this your experience? And if so, what changes should the organizations or universities make to their people policies to ensure that talent isn't lost or left behind? So Samia, this one's for you. <laughs> I mean, uh, for sure, I think, you know, like from my experience, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, we, we constantly hear the saying from other people uh, saying that, you know, men always apply for a job when they think they're maybe 50% ready, whereas women, or, you know, even if they are 200% ready, they will still keep thinking of whether I'm the right person to apply for this job. So absolutely, uh, uh, from my experience, yes, women uh, lack confidence uh, than men uh, when trying to apply for promotions and all. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, so the question is more about, um, you know, what uh, university should change uh, in, in the policies to make the talent isn't lost. So um, again, uh, to have that, uh, you know, like this creating a support network uh, for women uh, where, you know, they can, they, they could be uh, like kind of uplifted by uh, colleagues at the same level and also, you know, like senior um, uh, roles within the university to kind of, you know, constantly reminding uh, women researchers, you know, like the, the wonderful job they are doing, juggling the, the caring responsibilities with, uh, you know, the, the clients. So that is uh, absolutely important. And also, I don't know, I mean, this might be a bit, uh, this is, you know, so this might take uh, longer than, uh, but even the promotions criteria, you know, whether we, we should be re revisiting some of these, uh, like you know, Leslie touched upon this uh, earlier, you know, like uh, a lot, in a lot of cases, you know, we'll be always asked to go back and do more. Um, um, and, you know, it's not, so somebody told me that, you know, it's not just about how good you do your job. Are you ready for that next, uh, uh, you know, like the, 
the next level that you are applying for that is more important in uh, in promotions as well. You know, initially I was a bit shocked to hear that. I was quite naive at that stage. Um, but but that's that's how uh, things work, isn't it? It's not no matter how good you do your job, that is your job. So that's fine. You know, you need to uh, demonstrate that you are ready for the the next level. So I don't know whether we need to be reconsidering that because certainly in industry it's not like that. I had a, a little bit of experience working. Um, in industry as part of my PhD and there you know like if you're doing a fantastic job obviously you get promoted to the if you're a scientist you'll become a senior scientist uh, uh, and so on but uh, university and academia it's different so whether we should be uh, you know kind of revisiting that uh, it might be you know it, it's not as easy as I'm saying this it would but that, that's my uh, my opinion humble opinion I don't know if it's just academia or just different cultures doing things differently. I remember one of my US colleagues telling me that, you know, when she first started as a as assistant professor, she got three grants immediately and had her, her head of department came along and said, oh, you've done really well, you know, so we are going to give you a pay rise without actually promoting, you know, applying for it. So I guess in UK things maybe work a little bit differently and academia work a little bit differently. So maybe that's where mentoring comes into play, really strong kind of encouraging uh, mentors that help you build that career. Um, Catherine, I wonder whether we can pick up a, a qu on the question from Grace Lowe, who's asked, what advice would you give to women to feel more empowered and appreciated at work? Oh, good question, Grace. Let's see. What advice would I give to women to feel more empowered and appreciated at work? I think the first way to sort of feel more empowered and appreciated is to actually reflect on what it is that you've accomplished and actually start there first, because I think it's important for us to recognize how much we've achieved and how much we do without maybe looking for that to come from an external source. So I think actually if you stop and you consider everything you have done to that point and how much you've achieved in comparison to maybe others um, at a similar level or, or whatnot, I think that's one way to actually say, yeah, actually I have done an awful lot. So if you've had a week where you think I've not accomplished anything, you stop and actually think about what you've done. You say, yeah, no, I've done, done a lot. And I think in terms of feeling appreciated at work, I think that that's more about the people around us and the culture to be able to say to one another, thank you so much for that. I recognize that I've asked you for something um, and you've made that a priority to, for me. So I think we receive appreciation. We also give it. We start to create that culture of the organization um, within the university and academia of actually um, recognizing how we work together. Um, and, and then so if you give, you get. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, and in terms of feeling empowered, I think it's about recognizing that we all have unique strengths and talents and putting ourselves forward. We need to make sure that we are um, putting our hands up. So there's an interesting um, statistic. Sorry, I, I um, was thinking about all these things, things you hear over the years and things you read. But men are more likely to put their hands up to say, yes, I'll, I'll take the chair position. You know, so if there's a committee and all of a sudden you're saying, OK, we need a new chair, men will put their hand up and say, I'll be that chair, whereas women won't necessarily. So I think we need to be empowered to speak up in meetings, to um, acknowledge one another's contributions um, and to actually then put ourselves forward for those um, roles um, because someone else will and then they'll delegate the work to you. <laughs> 
Thank you. We're, we're kind of running out of time and I really want to squeeze in just one more quick, quick question, if that's OK for Leslie. Um, so a lot of this, uh, so this is from Naomi, uh, a lot of this is around fix the women. What's about the importance of the leadership function, about the feedback, transparency, clarity and accountability? Absolutely. I think that is crucially important. Um, and I think that women often don't ask for feedback. Um, uh, and I think that that's been something that I've always been very open and receptive to as I've moved through the career and getting and receiving feedback, asking for that and ensuring that I have it. I now have three children outside the door here making such a racket, so apologies. Um, I do think that um, women need to be empowered as they're moving through their career um, and I think that's one of the most important things is that I think we often forget to tell um, individuals and it's not isolated to telling women but just to tell people as they're going through their career you're really doing a good job or this is how you could do it better these are the things that you need in moving forward and I know that there were some people were asking there so there was an individual on the chat was asking how can I be a good mentor I've been uh, recommended as being a mentor how can I be good well I think the most important thing is being honest and open um, and we all have experiences where we have identified and we have faced really difficult situations and it's being open and honest about those. And I think that this has been a great opportunity for all of us to do that. Um, I think also moving on from this, it's ensuring that women do feel empowered, that they can, they can take on the chair position on a committee, that they can take on these other responsibilities, even if they have families and they have other things that they have to do <laughs> afterwards. Um, but all of this is really important um, that we ensure that women are given these the opportunities, the same opportunities as men, but that we are given the opportunities and also that we take those. So I think a lot of the reasons why women don't look at moving forward to the next position is because they think that I've got enough going on now. Um, so I think that a lot of those opportunities and those barriers that we face are put up by ourselves. Um, and so it is breaking down those barriers. And I think one of the best things that I've identified through the COVID pandemic, I love working from home. I love being here, although I forgot my child as well to pick her up today. And so she walked down, she walked down the lane herself. I was on a meeting and I had missed track of time. She walked down the lane herself. It's not very far, so she's fine. But she's six years old um, and giving her the strength to, to be able to do that. I felt like a terrible mother today, um, not doing schoolwork and not picking my child up from the top of the road. Um, but these are these are things that we face as we move forward in our careers. And I think it's really important that we face these, but that we move on from them as well. So I would like to thank um, everyone who's attended today. I'm sure there are many other questions that we have not been able to address and to be able to assist with. I am available and if anybody wants to 
um, get in touch, and I'm sure the other panel members would be in the same capacity. We have incredibly um, busy uh, calendars um, with our work requirements, but we're also, you know, I'm also open to having a chat with people outside of that if it could help them in their career development. Thank you so much, Leslie. So this really leaves me exactly. You can just stall my bit, but thank you so much for that introduction. I'd just like to thank our panelists, first of all, for the stimulating discussion. And I just wonder whether we can just do like a little round of applause in our own offices, rooms, whatever, houses. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I found this really stimulating. Uh, but I would also like to thank our audience for joining us tonight, posing such challenging questions. And I think it's quite obvious we're all in the same boat and people are looking for solutions and looking from leaders to kind of to give us an insight how we could change things. Um, I do hope you've enjoyed tonight's event and that you'll be able to join um, a number of the other events that are organized by the University of Aberdeen team um, that is running throughout this, this whole week and finally I would also like to thank the engagement team behind the scenes who have put this all together to allow us to choose to challenge so thank you everybody and I hope you have a great evening good night this podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen